Hello and welcome to a rather glitzy edition of Careers Talk. I'm Alison White. Ladies and gentlemen. And the Oscar goes to the King's Speech. Ian Canning, Emile Sherman and Gareth Unwin producers. We've all been secretly swept up in Oscar fever here this week. The frocks, the tears, the gaffes and of course the art of great filmmaking. Later, we'll be rolling out our own red carpet for Elliot Grove, founder of the Raindance Film Festival, who's here to offer advice for anyone wanting to break into film. But first, Kate McCann and Eliza Anyangwe are here with me for this week's News Jam. Hello, ladies. Hi. Hi. So I think Eliza's kicking us off today. What have you got? Right, well, I found this story, and it's about ARCVs. Sounds very exciting. Um, (laughs) Augmented reality. For the time being, it's specifically for IT professionals. Some statistics or research shows that 88% of recruiters find mistakes in um, IT job seeker CVs. 74% of them are not confident enough when they're met in person. And so um, augmented reality is just about using video and computer-generated data and visualizations so that you present yourself in a far more realistic and interesting way. So the, the general idea is how do you improve on your CV and stand out from the crowd? And it was just an interesting story because it helps with AR CVs. You can cut out spelling mistakes, grammar errors. If it's too lengthy, it can be shortened down and it stops rambling. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it's not something that most people can use. Um, The uh, recruitment agency that have just launched this for IT professionals, um, cwjobs.co.uk, are only working with two students at the moment to help them launch their CV this way but you can go onto the website and check it out and then think of what other tools you can use to make your CV a lot more creative and interactive. Oh, very interesting very modern. I was interested this week I read a blog um, on our own career site from Ruth Spellman chief executive of the Chartered Management Institute and she was talking about turning your internship into a permanent role and I think we all know that sometimes internships aren't always the most popular you know you don't get a very high wages and you might not be given the best task but she had some really interesting advice because you know a lot the time people want to stay on with the company they have a placement with so she said before you get started spend some time researching the company and its projects you know have some good industry knowledge as well and it won't be on notice by your manager and you know first impressions are last impressions be really good on your first day be very polite you know might all sound obvious but I you know I think the more you put in the more you'll get out of it and I think this is a really point that stuck out with me because when I've done work experience before is it's so easy to shrink into the background and be terrified and not want to go to the coffee you know and have a biscuit out of the tin or anything but I think you know that she's saying try and get to know people and you know speak to people and the contacts you make you know they'll remember you if a job does come up and you're not offered mm. one straight away so some nice advice there I thought. Well yeah. I've had an interesting one this week there was a survey out that said only 20% of British workers are happy in their jobs mm. which is quite shocking really so we found this website called Escape the City and their aim is to help people who work in the city to escape jobs in fine and IT and get into things that are completely off the wall so anything you know traveling working on a farm doing a farm a farm shop working in a forest anything completely different Um, so their website has loads of information it has their heroes they call people heroes when they've escaped a job and they (laughs) they move into something different and they, they profile those people and they come back and help other people do the same thing so it's a really useful tool um they've also got a connections part of their website which is where lots of tv um groups and ad agencies when they're looking for people for new shows they go on there and they advertise it so it's a really interesting thing to do like you were saying about changing your cv to get a different 
you know, a different perspective. It's a good way to apply for jobs in a different way, I think. It was interesting. Fantastic. Thank you both. Hello, I'm back again to give you some career advice, hopefully. This week, Julia Nunley has some advice for someone who desperately needs a plan C. There's a letter today which really taken my interest, actually, from someone who's unemployed because they left their job to do a master's in something that they really wanted to do. However, during the course of doing their master's, the economy changed, they've come out of education to find that there are no jobs, and they're curious to know whether or not they need a plan C. Self-help books have told this person that they need to list aspirations and their competences and things that they're proud of, but they're worried that their lists are too tiny. Now, I think the problem with all of us, actually, really, is that we're terrible at seeing the stuff that we're good at. We're our own best critics, you know, when things go wrong. But actually, if you asked any of us to write down a list of things we're good at, we'd probably stumble after about three things. In actual fact, in this situation, what I would be inclined to do is to ask maybe a former employer or a colleague, a friend, you know, that, that knows you quite well, to sort of list the things that they think you're really good at. Because I bet you, your skills will be very different from the ones that you think you have. And I think, you know, having that insight in your life is incredibly valuable. You know, you have to be prepared in case someone says something that you're not particularly keen on. But at the same time, it's just a useful exercise as you're developing yourself for your career. Because the way that you interact with people, the way that you present yourself to people is vital to success. And so it's really important that you've got some self-awareness. So once you've kind of drawn up this new list of your kind of potential uh, skills, as well as your aspirations and your competences, you'll probably see that there'll be some recurring themes. So what I'd be inclined to do is to highlight the same themes that kind of come up on everybody's lists and hopefully from that you might start to see the shape of a new direction that you might want to take your life in or it may be that it gives you a project to work on that helps you to bide your time until something until the economy does recover. I was very fortunate and I know most people are not uh, as fortunate as I am that uh, during part of my career development they paid for a life coach to help me develop my skills so that I'd be a better employee. And I remember at the end of this process, I was being interviewed for a new job within the company. And the day before my interview, the life coach wrote me a letter, which we had agreed that she, would, she could do, which listed all of the stuff that she had observed about me. And it was absolutely, it, I still keep the letter now and I take it out and read it, especially if I'm feeling, you know, a bit down. Uh, because there's some really nice things in there, some observations that she made about me that actually I never even realised. Stuff that I take for granted about myself and the way that I am, she saw that as an asset, as a real key thing that is valuable to an employer that I just take for granted. So that's kind of what I was, what I was trying to get at with that sort of um, example earlier is that we sometimes don't know what we're brilliant at. And it's just it's just a case of asking other people. Maybe trade with someone. Say, you know, do the list for me, I'll do it for you. Ultimately, let's be honest, we all like talking about ourselves. So I don't think you're going to struggle to find somebody who, who'd want to do that. That was Julian Lindley, Creative Director at Bauer. Joining us now in the studio is Elliot Grove, the man behind the UK's largest independent film festival, Raindance, and the founder of the British Independent Film Awards. 
He's produced more than 150 short films and five feature films, has written eight scripts and also teaches writers and producers. So he knows a thing or two about making your mark in a competitive industry. Hello, Elliot. Hey, Ali. Okay, so I'm going to start off by asking you, what inspired you to set up an organisation dedicated to independent filmmaking? Well, understand, Ali, I'm Canadian and I moved over here in the mid-80s and did everything but film. I, my previously, I'd worked as a scenic artist over in Canada and at the BBC ages ago. And uh, was, times are hard back in the last recession, 1991, and I'm Canadian, I'm trying to figure out what would turn British people on, and I thought, ah, membership cards to obscure niche organizations. So the Raindance Premium Membership was launched, and then to get make a bit of money and also to meet contacts again, I started training courses in 1992, and within a year, people in Britain started making movies again. They had made tons in the 1960s, but then advent of television that collapsed, and that year, 1993, there were only six feature films made in the UK. So we started teaching classes, people started making movies again, and I thought, ah, there's no real place to show them in the UK, so I started a festival for British independent film called Raindance, right in the heart of London, and then I found out something else, Ali, mm. you British are really snobbish. You didn't see the <laughs> posters of a government organization or a big brand behind it. But who came those first few years were the Japanese, the French, the Italians, and the Americans. And it took about five or six years before the British cottoned on that actually their own film festival in the heart of London was kind of, I don't know, cool. So uh, at the moment, everyone's talking about the success of The King's Speech, which is an independent British film. So what do you think um, this impact has really on the success of the industry? Uh, King's Speech, I mean, just put this in context. You have, a, by Hollywood standards, a, a very low-budget film by Hollywood standards uh, going literally into the belly of the beast at the Oscars and snatching all this, the important hardware right under the noses <laughs> of the American studios. Uh, of course, this happened two years ago with Slumdog Millionaire, another one like that. And if I were, help me, a, an executive of a Hollywood studio in America with $60, $80 million, I would be very worried that these films, made for literally my catering budget, were coming in, scooping all the hardware. And here's something else, Alison. They're all coming over here looking for new talent because they think there's something in our drinking water <laughs> that they don't have. So would you say the independent sector is an area to aim for as a budding film creative? Uh, the independent film sector, all that means really is that you're doing it yourself or with very, very limited funding. And the challenge is, of course, monetizing it. A challenge that all films and all filmmakers have everywhere. The independent sector right now is very, very crowded. The advent of digital, both production techniques and distribution, have made it even more difficult. But if you have talent and you know how to go about it and understand how the industry works, I think it is the new golden age for filmmaking. What kind of impact do you think the closure of the UK Film Council will have on that? Do you think that's going to affect pros prospects at all? There's a lot of misconception about what happened to the UK Film Council. Firstly, when they started off 10-odd years ago, they made mistakes like anyone does, uh, but not the sorts of mistakes that have been touted about in the press. In the last three years... They've done exceptionally well, and The King's Speech is a good example of a film that they funded, mm -hmm. and that film would not have been made had they not stepped up to the bat with a million quid that no one else wanted to put in. And it's sort of like this glorious swan song of the closure of the Film Council. However, the money hasn't disappeared. It's just being redistributed by a new quangle, in this case the British Film Institute, worthy, worthy thing. But also, Alison, the thing to remember about the film industry, it's a relationship industry. So if you were trying to get your film going up in this year, last year, with the UK Film Council and building relationships,
relationships with certain individuals, those people have largely gone. So now you need to start a new process of building up new relationships with the new team at the BFI. Okay, so your own career, you seem to have straddled lots of different areas. Is that common or would you say that some people follow a certain path the whole way through? How does, how does it work? You know, uh, there's no one route into the mm. film industry, especially. There's only your route. Mine is somewhat unusual because my parents were Amish farmers outside Toronto, the horse and buggy people, and I was told as a young kid never ever to go to the cinema because the devil lived there. Mm-hmm. And one summer's day, hot, I was 16, I was sent into town on, a, on an errand, and I'm walking up and down the high street, and like many 16-year-olds, uh, I had some few coins in my pocket, and I wanted to see what the devil looked like, and lo and behold, he had his own building, the cinema. So I walked in, I sat down, they turned the lights off, It's a bit like church with rows of chairs lined up, except the fabric on the chairs was red. (laughs) And they turned the lights off, and the first movie I saw in the cinema was Lassie Comes Home, Mm -hmm. and I was hooked forever. The other thing I should mention, that whatever your dull and boring day job is, skills that you have are very easily transferable. And the basic skills that you need are good organizational skills, multitasking is good, uh, and also in this day and age, uh, of course, uh, internet skills. And if I were starting out, and if I was starting again now, I would certainly learn anything to do with motion and pictures on on video or digital, learning how to manipulate them, edit them. And the thing that everyone ignores is sound. So we're sitting here in this glorious studio here at The Guardian. Someone's got to tweak out all my schlurps and misses <laughs> and so on. To know how to do that puts you in a very, very employable position. Well, we would like to talk about the training courses you offer at Rain Dance now. How do they work? I mean, our courses at Rain Dance are somewhat different than anywhere else, I think, in Europe. First of all, if you want to learn filmmaking, Alison, you should never, ever, ever come to Rain Dance because if, at Rain Dance, we do not teach filmmaking. What we do is we make filmmakers. And the skills that we teach are taught by people who are actually working, not teaching. So they are taught by professionals who can teach. And the basic courses that we do are all very, very short courses because we know that basically the craft of filmmaking is actually quite simple and easy to learn. What takes time is practicing your craft. We'd rather give you a little taste, give you a little kick, give you a little bit of information, and then see you out on the streets of London shooting a film, which, if it's good enough, will show at the Raindance Film Festival. Fantastic. Excellent. So, ground up, really, I'd like to ask what you think it takes to make a name for yourself in the film industry. Passion. Passion. You have to live, eat, drink, sleep, think your career day and night. The second thing you need if you want to make it as a filmmaker is a wonderful script. The other strand is have passion, get a great script, but learn how to become blatant self-promotion. Use social media and so on. It doesn't mean to say you have to come across to someone pompous and arrogant like me, for example, but you need to understand how to tell other people how good you are because unless you believe that and can say that in a convincing fashion, you are ultimately doomed. Well, thank you ever so much for joining us and talking to us today. Good, thank you. Joining us in the studio is someone who has a huge amount of passion for film. Katie Steed is the co-founder of Whirly Gig Cinema, which she set up to showcase the work of up-and-coming video artists and filmmakers. Hello, Katie. Hi there, hi. Hi. Okay, so what inspired you to create Whirly Gig Cinema? Um, Well, when I was at uni, I kind of developed a passion for film through a module in film, where I wrote a dissertation on cinema at music festivals. And then I I started to work in a cinema and developed a passion through that. 
I realise there's so many films out there that need to be shown. I'm kind of, you know, more passionate about showing the films rather than making them myself. Can you tell us a bit more about what Whirly Gig Cinema is and how it works? It's a not-for-profit project set up to help to expose the talents of up-and-coming filmmakers through short film programmes. So we've had we've had one event so far where it's just been a showreel of films and we've got another one coming up next week, comedy-themed. We're also developing our website, so we're going to have features on there which include artist spotlights, so we'll just focus on one filmmaker, say, a fortnight or a month or something like that. Then I teamed up with the Cabinet of Living Cinema, who rescore films, and I showed like up-and-coming short films but with their soundtracks taken off, and they were then rescored by the Cabinet. So it's a good opportunity for um, filmmakers, you know, with, with soundtracks they haven't necessarily got the rights to, to show their, their visual work, which is often very, very good, but it's just that they haven't been able to show it in public so far. Okay. It seems that um, a lot of the, the film festivals, I think, are very exclusive, so you get hundreds and hundreds of applications sent to film festivals, but, you know, maybe 10% of them get shown. You know, there's a lot of people out there that want to get their work shown, but it's, it's quite limited, with, they don't quite know how to do it. Are these just UK films or do you go further afield? Um, they're mostly UK films, um, mainly because I, I like the filmmakers to actually be at the events themselves and, you know, it's more of an atmosphere if they're all there and, like, cheering each other with their friends and everything. Um, but if it's a, you know, it's a foreign filmmaker living in Britain that's able to attend, then that's also fine. I'm not, I'm not too picky. OK, so you've worked in sort of numerous events yourself and how did you sort of land your first role? Well, I first started out by doing an internship at the BFI in the events team. That was from doing my dissertation. And from there, I just kind of made contacts um, at film festivals and have worked at various different film festivals. I find it actually fairly easy to get into because, you know, it's all unpaid work. It's really easy uh, just to, to, give, to lend a hand. Or, you know, film festivals are always looking for volunteers just to help out on the doors. And then others are looking for people to actually do internships in marketing and programming, that sort of thing. And you think so that's a good route? easy, yeah. Yeah, and that's a good route a good to, way to get skills. in. Yeah, it's a good way to get your foot in the door, that's for sure. So how can people get involved in Whirly Gig Cinema? Um, they can well we've got Twitter and Facebook as does everyone we've got a, a website it's probably best just to email me from the website if they're interested in getting involved wallygigcinema.com fantastic well thank you ever so much thank you now finding a graduate job doesn't have to mean moving to the big smoke so in this week's top 10 we uncover vacancies for first and second jobbers outside the M25 here are Eliza and Kate to reveal the chart Kicking off the chart at 10, it's a Community Education and Engagement Officer for Bioregional Development Group in Sutton. 9 is a chance to work in Aberdeen in this Graduate Drilling and Completion Engineer role for Nexon Petroleum UK. While at 8, there are opportunities for graduate trainees at Amberley Publishing in Gloucestershire. And at 7, Sherburn International College in Dorset is looking for a Graduate Resident Assistant. Coming in at 6, TPP Not For Profit is looking for a major donor and trust exec to work in West Sussex. Hertfordshire County Council is looking for newly qualified social workers at five. At four, South East Doctoral Training Centre is offering funded postgraduate research opportunities. Dudley Metropolitan Borough Council is looking for senior park ranger at three. One from the top at two, it's a production assistant at Future Publishing in Bath. And top of the charts this week, join an educational fundraising graduate trainee scheme run by CASE at a variety of locations. Okay, so all that's left is some dates for your diary. Eliza, what Q&As are coming up on the site next week? So on Tuesday the 8th of March, we have How to Become a Graphic Designer, Wednesday the 9th, What Can I Do with a Physics Degree, and on Thursday 10th, Breaking into the Film Industry. That brings us to the end of the pod. Thanks to our guests Elliot Grove and Katie Steed, studio team Eliza Anyangwe and Kate McCann. 
Careers Talk was produced by Sarah Cudden. I'm Alison White. 